welcome to the fourth episode of Talk on Tech. I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. And we're here as usual to guide you through the intricacies of everything information technology and careers here at Mount West. So today we're dealing with um, the week of February 20th. So a couple reminders right off the top here. I know I said it last week and I sound like a broken record, but people always forget. Do not forget that February 29th, at this point, less than a week from now, is going to be the end or the, the end of the first eight weeks and mid-semester. So just because you don't have an eight-week course doesn't mean you don't need to know about this. That means that next week is midterm. So you're going to be seeing a lot of midterms probably. And then, of course, March 1st starts the second eight weeks courses. Something else to also keep out there on the horizon March 16th, which is a Friday, is the last day to drop a full semester course. So if you're not doing so well in a full semester class, make sure you drop it so you get a W and not an F. And then also, one thing I did not bring up last week, it's been a while, that same day, March 16th, that Friday, is the day that applications for May graduation are due. So you need to go ahead and get those in. Uh, one thing you have to do to get those in, you do have to go and pay for your diploma. I believe your diploma is a $20 fee, I think. Don't don't shoot me if that's not true. It's either 20 or 30 but uh, that gets it shipped to you. That gets it in this nice little case and all that, all that happiness. If for some reason you miss that deadline, do not worry. It's not the end of the world. Basically, you can apply for summer graduation. You'll just be getting your diploma a lot later than you would have already. But realize you can't put that you've graduated from Mount West Community and Technical College on a resume until you've officially graduated. And you haven't officially graduated until you've registered for either uh, spring graduation or summer graduation. So until you get that information in there, Make sure you don't put it on there because employers can come back and claim yep. fraud yep. on those type of things. So that's the, our announcements that we have uh, for today. Let's go ahead and get into a couple of uh, fun articles that we found before we get into our talk on all things certification. So I'll go ahead and start it off today. First article I have for you actually, um, well, it kind of stems back from November of last year. <clears throat> last year. Hackers gained unauthorized access into Steam's user database. Anyone who's not familiar with what Steam is, Valve, the company who's made Half-Life, Half-Life 2, Team Fortress, Portal, a lot of big games, has an online uh, website where you can buy games. If anyone's familiar with iTunes, think of buying actual computer console-based games through iTunes. It's that type of thing. So you can go online, you can buy a game instead of having to drive to the store and buy it in a box and bring it home, that type of thing. The problem is hackers have gained access, and originally uh, the people who were in charge of that, Valve, said we're pretty sure that they didn't obtain any, any information whatsoever, nothing that was going to leak encrypted credit cards. Well, now they're changing their story. Uh, as of uh, last week, someone from Valve, a guy by the name of Gabe Newell, came back and said, 
We recently learned it's probable that intruders obtained copies of a backup file with information about Steam transactions, which means that they could have their usernames, their email addresses, their credit card information, and their encrypted mailing addresses, but no passwords. Ah, oh, well, that would make me feel so much better to know that someone had where I live, <laughs> my credit card information, my name, but thank goodness they don't have my password for my account. So that way they can't buy anything on my account. They can use my credit card. Now, did you say earlier that you you didn't receive an email about this? Is that what you're saying? I didn't. I haven't received an email about this. That's correct. Because uh, when I read this story, I was like, hey, I don't remember getting one of those. I do have a, a Steam account. I haven't bought a lot of stuff on it. Uh, I know back, back last spring, before Portal 2 came out, I went ahead and bought Portal 1 on there for 10 bucks so I could relive the oh, magic yeah. of portal yeah. one so i do have a steam account and i had to pay for that somehow so i'm sure <laughs> i put in a credit card yeah. maybe i told Oops. not to save my credit card possibly maybe yeah. that's what i did but yeah i hadn't heard anything about that until this new update that uh oh yeah maybe the hackers do have some of your confidential information but the uh the spokesperson for valve repeated the same thing they repeated last year which was as usual, it's a good idea to keep a watch on your credit card activity and their statements. So um, thanks for the tip. Like we didn't know that. <laughs> so now we can just be a little bit more vigilant because of, of their issues. So Steam's been hacked. <laughs> yay, yay, yay. What about you, Josh? Well, I got I got an article here that's um, somewhat... Um, it's the IT, IT realm overall, I guess. But okay. um, just it's a little bit of pop culture, I guess, here. Mm-hmm. Um, article reads, Sony Music chided for upping price of Whitney Houston iTunes album. <laughs> yeah, I heard so, about this. According to a report by The Guardian, the price of Whitney Houston's album, The Ultimate Collection, apparently found itself the subject of a 60% increase in Apple's iTunes music store shortly following the 48-year-old singer's death on Saturday. Um, basically... Now that was your U- that was your UK store, wasn't this it? This was the UK store. Yep, that's what I was okay. getting to. The album was found in the UK version of the iTunes store, and reportedly increased from four ninety nine pound British pound to mm-hmm. seven ninety nine British pound before Apple returned the album to its original price late Sunday. Um, Apple and Sony Music aren't commenting on the matter, but one insider close to the situation suggested to The Guardian that the price hike may have come about after Sony Music realized that the wholesale price of Houston's album had been incorrect and once corrected accounted for the retail price change inside Apple's music store. That all being said... It was very, very timely in that case. Yeah, I was going to say, it's very, it's very <clears throat> odd that they're, they decided on a Saturday... That just so happened to be after Winnie Houston um, passed away. Yeah, imagine that. That they would um, hike the price up sixty percent. I mean, I was thinking about that. You said four ninety nine British pounds. I don't know what the normal conversion is, but it's usually around at least two bucks. Mm-hmm. So if that's like five dollars British, that'd be like ten bucks at least U.S. Probably more. Mm-hmm. And then if it went up to eight dollars, that's almost sixteen bucks. So over here, that's at least a, a six dollar jump. I never actually went to the U.S. store to buy any for music recently, so I would be curious to know what the price is here in the U.S. Mm-hmm. to then know, hmm, were they correcting the price? Yeah. Was the U.S. price already like 16 bucks or not? 
Now, it says here that Houston's The Ultimate Collection isn't currently listed in the U.S. version of iTunes, uh. though her album Whitney, The Greatest Hits is currently sitting at the top spot. The album is priced at $14.99 and contains 36 tracks. Of the 32 Whitney Houston albums currently available in the U.S. iTunes store, only two cost $14.99. The rest are priced at $9.99 or less. Well, that did say that had 32 tracks. Thir- uh, 36 tracks. 36 tracks yeah. for $14.99. That's a heck of a That's deal. That's a heck of a deal. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when you think about an Greatest iTunes hits. song, uh, even at $0.99, cents, yeah. it's well, a heck of a deal. You know, they tell you to buy the album of, of whatever it is. Even if you're looking for one song, they say, buy the album, you'll save. You know, you'll save money overall. They got a lot of seven ninety nine and nine ninety nine album deals. But it just so happened that in the UK, Sony bumped up the price um, kind of close to um, when, with, when, when she just passed. So not really, not too much tech news there, but um, Apple, iTunes, that kind of stuff, um, come in full circle we like to talk about that so i thought that was pretty interesting so that is that is yeah i mean the the funny thing is um once you own that it's almost like stocks the price could fluctuate yeah. it can go down it can go up in that case for a little while you made some money <laughs> yeah so. okay my other story is more game related <clears throat> last week we talked uh, a little bit about some game stuff, and also here we're talking about Steam earlier, which is Steam is a is the uh, the way that Valve and other companies release their games. So I'm all about the games this week. Something I want to talk about is the idea of used games. There's been a lot of controversy recently, and it started to build more and more in the video game industry, but. Let's go back. Well, let's go back 10 years. Let's go back to when I was in high school or even in middle school. We had to go back more than 10 years <laughs> at that point. But still, when I was playing Nintendo or Super Nintendo or, or Sega, whatever it may be, back before the Internet was big, you went out and you bought a game, whether it was a CD-ROM or whether it was a cartridge. You brought it home. You put it into your console. You played it. If I wanted to give it to you, Josh, I could give it to you and you could play it. All okay. the functionality that was in the game... I now gave to you. You never had to buy a copy of the game. Of course, I didn't have my copy anymore. That's the way I was always accustomed to things happening. Recently, there's been more of a push towards having these things called online passes. And uh, one of the articles that I'm posting up here is from a lead designer of a game called Saints Row, a game that I actually own, that I enjoy, it's kind of like a Grand Theft Auto, open world, run around, do whatever you want. And he's talking about his opinion on the ability for next generation consoles to lock out the use of used video games. Okay. And so I, I got to say, when I started to see this actually take form has been more recently when people a lot of times want to play online. When you would buy the game, there might be a serial number in the box that you have to use to play online with it. A lot of times they're calling those online passes. Okay. Yep. Where basically you can't get to some of the uh, the information till that time. Uh, I don't usually play online, but more recently, one that actually got me was um, the recent release of, of Rocksteady's Batman's Arkham City. When, when they released Arkham City, a new Batman video game, people who bought brand new copies of the disc got a special code inside of there that allowed them to download Catwoman-based missions. 
And so basically, there was a part of the game that was already inside. It was already on the disk, but you couldn't unlock it unless you put that code in to be able to use it, which I thought, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't know how I felt about that. I thought that was a little, little shady slightly because the idea was if I take my copy of Batman Arkham City and I go to GameStop and I sell it to GameStop, when they go to sell it to another person, that person will not, by default, have the same experience I had when I opened my new copy. The idea is that online pass will have already been used by me. They'd have to go out and buy it. I believe it's like a $2 fee, something like that. But the reason that the industry is so is so mad about this, and I never thought about this, so that's why I'm, I'm bringing it up here for, for tech people to think about it as well in general. When someone buys a video game, some of that money as a new game goes to the game publisher. Or the same thing would be true that some of that money goes to a uh, application designer if it was an application you were buying. These days, you can't very I can't very well give you my copy of Office, Josh. It has a serial number. Yep. It registers to my machine. And you basically had to give them your firstborn and a blood sample <laughs> to get it to transfer from yeah. one machine to the other as it is. Oh my gosh. So I can't very well I can't very well hand it to you. But in the video game industry, that can happen. I can give you my game. Or I can take it to GameStop and they can buy it and they can resell it. The problem is when GameStop resells those games, the publisher sees none of that money. Yep. GameStop is making all of that money back, that profit. And so they might buy my game for $15 and turn around and resell it for $25. So the game industry is trying to find a way to get around this because it's GameStop who's making all the money. And GameStop's not the people who's making the cool games you like so much. So there's been a lot of rumors recently about a new Xbox console. And, you know, there's been a lot of new rumors even about uh, iPad 3s coming out in March. So there's, yeah. there's always people making rumors about everything. But one thing that's been a rumor about the new Xbox that might be released in the next year or whatever is the idea that they might have something built in that could block used video games. And they're not really for sure how that would happen but maybe there, maybe we'd have to be like consoles are at this point. Maybe we'd have to have a serial number that gets enclosed in the box when we buy our CD, and that serial number registers that product to our actual console. Now, I think that could be that's that feels like a slippery slope to me because I have had an Xbox Red Ring, and mm -hmm. for people who doesn't know what that means, you turn on the Xbox. And the, the, the power button glows. Normally it glows a nice greenish yellow around the outside. Okay. And they call it the red ring of death when you go to turn it on one day and all you see is a red light around that. And basically your device doesn't, doesn't turn on anymore. So uh, it's just a big giant brick at that point. If I had bought video games and I had gone ahead and attached them or, or bound them somehow to that Xbox and that Xbox died... How am I going to move those over? There's a lot of what-if statements here. I do understand the industry as a whole is trying to find a way to make sure that they can continue to make their games because this is not really a form of piracy, but they are still losing money when, yeah. the, when GameStop and places like that sell your games. So, And their big concern is we spend three years making a game, 
and we want to make sure we can make as much profit as possible. Yeah. We want to make sure that the users who are buying the games are, are at least giving us a chunk of their money to some degree. And so downloadable content is, is supplementing that. Now these online passes, they'd like to, to make sure that every game you buy has to be through them to some degree no matter what so they can stay afloat and, uh, and basically stay in business. It's interesting because, like with um, buying used games, mm-hmm. you've got you know you know you know, you just don't have GameStop now. You've got Best Buy's in that business now. Um, What's well, kind of, is it the same idea really that goes behind with um, like movies? You know, because like you can buy a lot of used movies and you know it not really be, you know, you you do lose out the same way. You know, they would lose that profit, but. They lose that profit, but movies doesn't seem to have any way yeah, yet. Yeah, I mean, that's what's going to say. like a digital really... copy. You know, yeah, I always, I always buy all these Blu-rays now, and they're like, free digital copy. And you yeah. open it up, and it expires. It expires in like two months. Yeah, yeah. So well, why don't like, I pay for that? Well, and like, I think that's, I wonder that's why they bundle them all together. I mean, we know everything is going to Blu-ray. So there'll be Blu-ray plus DVD plus digital copy. If you don't download that digital copy within a certain amount of time, you lose it. So if it's sitting on the shelf, by the time you buy it, a lot of times that digital copy is expired, but you, you might still be pay, paying that full price because I guess it's not really costing them any extra for that digital copy. But with the games, I mean, you've got GameStop, uh, Best Buy, other places that you know will sell them used. That's going to be really hard to... I mean, I understand what they're saying about losing their money and stuff, but so many people... I mean, if the games weren't fifty nine ninety nine, you know, 63 dollars when you buy them you'd have a lot more people willing to pay that at the start but you have so many people now that you know after you buy a console you're paying 300 bucks for a console 200 bucks for a console you might only be able to buy one game at a time i mean you think one game a month that's 60 60 some bucks a month so if you can buy it for 40 or 30 you might be able to buy pick up two games a month maybe they need to figure out a way for them to still get compensated for that but at the same time, there's so many people. I mean, I buy used games every once in a while, but there's a lot of games I, I would much rather have new to just say, okay, yeah, I bought this game new. I know it's going to work. But then there's some games I don't know how much I'll like them. you know. So I'll buy them used so I don't feel like I'm paying that 60-some dollars for a game that I might only play for you know a couple days because that's where it really comes in. I mean, the, the gameplay value, you're literally paying, you know, you know, uh, sixty some bucks, and what if you only play it for a couple of days? If you don't get it back in time, you don't get your full re- refund. That's another thing. I mean, if like with GameStop, I think it's got to be like seven days, and you can get your refund. Um, then anything after that, they can like trade it in, give you a percentage. Um, but I, I don't know. That's going to be hard to. Well, you know what I also think about. There's a company people may not be aware of called GameFly. Yep, you may have seen fun. commercials and not know what it's about. Yep. If you're familiar with Netflix, the idea that you pay for a service and through the Internet you can pick certain movies you want to have delivered to your house. If, if anyone still does that, I still do that. I haven't seen yeah. any DVDs. Some things won't stream. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of hard. It would be kind of hard to stream your video games down to a console all the time, especially if you didn't have great Internet. Yeah. So Gamefly, you can rent games per month. That's not going to work very well for Gamefly. How are they going to be able to rent those games? Because even, for example, the Batman Arkham City game, exactly. um, all those people who are renting that game, after the first person, 
Nobody was able to do that unless you went in on your own account and paid the extra two bucks to go ahead and add on the Catwoman add-on. That Mm -hmm. was the idea. Each individual person would be paying to add that on. Well, I mean, you know, with with like that, with with Gamefly, um, you think that they would have a deal with companies or something that they wouldn't you wouldn't think they would just buy so many copies of a game and then rent them out i mean there's got to be some legality issues there what is like with like netflix i mean is that what they do do they just buy copies of those movies in a sense and rent them out there's been times where i've rented movies from netflix Mm -hmm. and you go to put the disc into the into your uh your dvd player Uh and it blatantly says on it not for rental yeah yeah i mean there's like there was a time That's I think I like Miramax, for example, uh, they that a lot of Miramaxes yeah. they weren't going to allow them to do it. They just would go to a Walmart, I guess, and buy them. Well, I really think that's what Redbox started out doing. I really think when they were starting out that they were literally just buying copies of these movies and then renting them out as a service. And and then I mean, what like what about like Redbox? That's what Blockbuster did back in the day. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't think they paid any extra. They just they bought one movie. Of course. Back when VHSs were around, if anybody remembers what those were, movies back then, they were 90 bucks. Yeah. They were 90 bucks for a VHS. I mean, I, at one point, I think I even looked at buying a couple movies. I wanted to because back then, unless it was a Disney movie, you weren't buying that at Walmart or a company like that. It's not like every single movie would come out on VHS yeah. like every single movie now comes out on DVD and Blu-ray. That's just not the way it worked. So they charged an awful lot more. Uh, I guess maybe they got wise to the fact that more people had, more people didn't have VCRs, but more people later got uh, a hold of DVD players and now Blu-ray players, and so it's more of a consumer market. But that eventually drove Blockbuster uh, out of business for the most part. Why would I go and pay five bucks at a Blockbuster for a movie that that I can go to Walmart and buy for twelve bucks and watch twice or give to my give to my neighbor or give to yeah. my my family and let them watch it too and and then save a whole bunch more money so that was just changing the things yeah. and and really Batman Arkham City was a real was a really big game but uh, another article here mentions the fact that Warner Brothers was boasting in their uh, in their 2011 final quarter sales that Batman Arkham City sold 6 million copies now that that sounds pretty good to me, it does. But when you think about someone who, a company like Warner Brothers, who may spend three years developing a game, may have a team of fifteen or twenty people. These people are doing such large productions. You might as well think of these as as movies. And so, six million copies does not sound like to me to be a large pull in for a movie. I mean, a movie does does six million okay let's say let's say that the video game company is actually making uh 30 bucks because you got to let you got to make sure game fly or mm. or game game spot i mean make some money 30 bucks a pop six million copies in an entire year they made 18 million dollars off this game that does not sound like a lot i, I i've never seen a, a cost ratio to what they yeah. paid to develop it but i imagine many of these games already cost much higher than a million dollars. Last week, 
we talked about uh, the guy, Tim Schaefer, who was going to be making a point-and-click console-based game based on kind of like the old King's Quest-style game. Mm-hmm. And he wanted $400,000 just to develop his game. That was not a 3D-based game. Nope. That was not a first-person shooter. That was not like... He didn't have teams of writers coming in and adapting this. He also didn't have uh, branding to deal with. You know, I'm sure Batman oh, yeah. in a game is not cheap. You've got to no. pay someone <laughs> for the for the franchise. So all that for about a half a million dollars. A lot of these people is probably a big gamble for them. Make a one million dollar game, hope and pray that we have enough people buy it that we break even. So I, I do. I do see the plight of the companies who are like, we want to make sure we still uh, get some money. And I don't, I don't know what to think about the game stops and, and the, uh, the, the game, um, like the Babbage's and electronic boutiques. I'm sure all those have been purchased up. I know basically game stops are the only one I see anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And there's one like down, down at Pullman as well. But um, it seems like that's all around here. But I can remember them still selling used games as far back as the Super Nintendo. Yeah. Well, that's a, I mean, they still have little shelves with Game Boy Advance and old Game Boy games still in them. Now, they did attempt the used DVD market there for a little while, and I don't think they made enough off of it. They were buying them pretty cheap, and they were having to sell them so cheap. You know, it wasn't really getting them anywhere, and then they just stuck with used games. Um, Maybe they need to make, like, hmm... Maybe they should make like a moratorium on how long a game can't be sold used. Yeah, maybe maybe something like that. Yeah, because I, I mean, just... look look at the look at the uh, the movie theater, the the MPAA, the motion picture mm-hmm. industry. They have a movie in theaters. It seems like that window of time is getting shorter and shorter now. But um, maybe you say for the first six months, no. Yeah. Maybe they 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 make something that says. These codes are only going to work for the first six months. Because yeah. I will say, it, let's say I drug out my old Dreamcast system mm-hmm. and it didn't work anymore. The first place I would go to look for one would be a GameStop. Yeah. I, I don't like I don't like buying stuff like that on eBay when you're buying something that they say is definitely used and you don't know if it's going to work when you get it. I'd like to go see what I'm oh, buying. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to buy sight unseen. So. I do think, especially for, like you were saying, Game Boy Advance games, older games, mm-hmm. there's still a really good, I would think, uh, used market, especially when they're out of print. Well, there's even a couple locally. I believe there's one over in Ashland, if it's still open, and there was one open somewhere else. But I've been to some big mall, big malls in some bigger cities like Columbus and Cincinnati, and there are used game stores popping up that are that are just in the market for used games i mean they'll have pristine mint box you know super nintendo um games and things like that and then they also have you know all these other games rare games and just regular games that they that anybody can pick up anywhere but their whole store is used games they don't carry new games so with that i really wonder what they're going to do um but like you said i mean when a new game comes out, it's usually it's two three months usually before you see a used version of it at GameStop. I think they wait to try to see if they can back. Like they'll sell you can sell them back, but they'll wait to put them on the shelves until they have so many in stock, so right. long of a time. So maybe they just do that. Okay, well here's your stamp on. You have to sell new games up to this point, 
you know, make or break it. Here's your here's your window of opportunity to make money off of these games. Mm-hmm. After that point, yes, we'll still sell your new games, but we're going to also sell these used ones. Right. I mean, there's, they're going to have to find some sort of compromise because I can't imagine that um, that going down too well, especially no. with the new. I mean, if they're wanting people to buy these new consoles that are going to be able to do that, people just won't buy the new consoles. So. Well, I mean, I feel sure people will buy the new consoles. Well, they just won't be happy about it. Yeah, that they, they'll still be screaming. So, but I mean, I know that that's a whole bunch of video games, and, and this is a this is a technology podcast, an <laughs> IT podcast. But, but all tech. this stuff, I feel as well, still relates back to um, even PC software. Yes. I mean, they're talking about now with Windows 8, they're going to want to go ahead and. With OEM copies of Windows 8, yeah, I've heard them say they're wanting to like embed into the uh, the EFI BIOS. Oh, what your wow. serial number is going to be? Ooh. Yeah, so you're not going to be able to transfer those copies. So Man. everybody's looking at how they can go ahead and stop used software. But Piracy. it seems like the consoles Gosh. have been doing that forever and a day. Yeah, I mean there was and even that's... one game a while back, uh, the Assassin's Creed Revelations game. Yes, which I had for Xbox and. I loved it. It was great. The people who bought the the console versions, at one point, uh, Ubisoft was threatening to require the software to phone home every single time you started what? the game. Yeah, and so I do realize we we are in West Virginia and we do get a sometimes a bad rap, but there are definitely people who don't have internet access yeah. down here. Yeah. We we don't wear, you know, we're we're not hillbillies, but. Yeah. But there's definitely people around here who do not have a computer. Yeah, the rural don't have, areas. Yeah, there's rural areas you got and dial-up internet. That's not going yeah, to be able to run your and when Xbox you're not, on that. When you're not maybe making millions of dollars or, or even thousands of dollars, a lot of times you don't always have the ability to buy what's still considered a a luxury yes. of internet access. Exactly. And so somebody has to keep in mind that if that they're going to go that route that not everybody can get online to the Internet. Even Microsoft now, when you go to register your Windows 7, there's still the option to go the telephone route. You have to say like a 90-digit code, which is ridiculous, but there's still the old-fashioned landline way. So, Well, i got a couple short ones here. Um, Office, speaking of Microsoft, Microsoft Office 15, public beta is due this summer. Um, so we're on Microsoft Office 2010 right now. Some people are still using Microsoft Office 2007. I believe they've stopped support for 2003. Is is 15? I mean, uh, is 14? Was that 2010? Yeah, I guess they just decided to. I really don't know why they called it 15. Well, um, we don't. We don't really oh, know well, the name. It says yeah. It's um, uh, Office 15 is the code name for the product. Right. Um, they're not saying they're not really saying anything new about any of the components other than you know Word, Excel, Outlook, and PowerPoint. Um, they're really keeping it under wraps. But uh, the Office 15 technical preview was already full, but added that everyone will have the opportunity to try Office 15 public beta later this summer. So there okay. are already people are testing it out. They're not supposed to say anything about it. Uh, the public beta that they're they're going to have out this summer, everyone should be able to download it and try it out. I remember two summers ago when 2010 came out, mm-hmm. um, because I think it actually came out a little bit later. Um, I remember I downloaded the beta and tried it. It worked just as good as what we use now, the full version of 2010. So, um, Do you find a lot of differences 
in those? I mean, there are some. Between, if you jump from 2007 to 2010, there are a few. Now, there's a lot of people that jump from Office 2003 to 2010. And Even the jump from 2003 to 2007, right. there's a lot of differences. Well, they're like, what's this ribbon? Yeah, the so, ribbon and things like that. Um, I know they're not a fan of the ribbon. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I've gotten used to it now. I'm, I've grown accustomed to it. It says the biggest thing is uh, with Office 15, for the first time ever, we will simultaneously update our cloud services, servers, and mobile and PC clients for Office, Office 365, Exchange, SharePoint, Link, Project, and Visio. So they're saying basically they're going to update everything all at once when there's updates out for it. Well, you know, I think what would be neat, and i got to plead ignorance at this point because uh, I'm a Mac person, mm-hmm. so I actually have... Um, Microsoft Office 2008 on that, okay. and so yeah. if you want to relate that to the PC, that's that's like more like Office 2007, because 2007 yeah. came out for PC, and then 2008, I think they've since had like a 2011 version that's out. Yeah. But um, I think what would be neat is if I would have the ability to use Word, Excel, and PowerPoint at the house on my legitimate copy that I've got installed. Or if I'm out and about, if I could sign into a service that might actually come with it, something they could use to rival Google Docs. And yeah. like I said, I'm pleading ignorance because they may already have that ability. Well, I mean, I if they do, I don't use it. I haven't mm-hmm. really heard a whole lot about it. But I mean, there's some apps out there right now for your mobile devices. Mm-hmm. Um, cloud on, I cloud on, and live on, I believe is the other one. And literally, you sign up for these free services. They're free apps. They give you access to what seems to be a remoted, um, a it's remote a into a Word. Terminal server. Yeah, like a terminal type thing mm-hmm. where you can bring up a, a Word document, Excel document, PowerPoint, and it looks like what you would see on your computer and you're right. able to type into it and everything. So, Well, I know online if you sign up for a, um, a Hotmail account, you now go through Outlook or like here at, here at MCTC, we have Outlook Live. And so there's an area called Office Live yes. Workspace. I just have not messed around with that enough. It seems like Google's done a very good job of promoting their Google Docs. Mm-hmm. I know of those. But if Microsoft has started to branch out and do that, I am unaware of such a thing. That'd be awesome, though. Yeah, I, my guess is, especially with this roughly will ship around the same time Windows 8 does. Mm-hmm. And everything that they're doing with these, they keep going back to this cloud, the sharing I mean, I think it would be in their best interest to say, if you buy this copy of, of Office 2000, I guess it would be 13, but it's, it's called 15 right now, but if you buy this version of Office, not only we have access to it on the computer you download it on, but you can log in and have access to it on a, you know, some sort of cloud-type situation with, like, Google Docs and things right. like that and store it. You, well, right now they're already giving you so much free space on a SkyDrive. SkyDrive, yeah. So, I mean, just tie all that together. Well, it sounds like that's what they're doing. So. That'd be great. You were mentioning cloud computing. Didn't uh, weren't you telling me something earlier about Mr. Megalode or Mega Upload? Oh, Mega Upload. Yeah, the um, lead programmer mm-hmm. of Mega Upload has been released um, on Bell, and the big his big thing is he is not allowed to be on the internet. So <laughs> he's not allowed to have his phone or anything like that. They can they connect to an internet. Um, I'm sure he's being highly supervised. Um, That'll be an interesting story. I'd like to see what happens in a, a couple of weeks when more details shake out of that. I think we could you really know, talk a lot I, I about that. I had heard 
Several weeks before the mega upload incident happened, which if people haven't heard, mega upload was a place where, kind of like the SkyDrive we were just talking about, it was a place where you could upload files and store them as a repository and then, I suppose, let other people access them. Mm-hmm. A couple weeks before that, this guy had had a music video made. He had a, a, a song written and a music video made, and there was a lot of very big singers, maybe like a lot of rappers. I mean, I'm not mm-hmm. saying like Jay-Z or something like that was there, but people were really raising eyebrows saying, where is this guy getting this money to make what I think was a $3 million music video? And so I'm sure there's something more behind all yeah. this mega upload stuff. Well, they keep talking about how so many people used mega upload not necessarily for what they're considering illegal downloads and illegal sharing, but so many people put their own music and things like that up there, and people were able to access and download it and things like that. And Isn't that basically what Spotify is all about, though? Um, Yeah, but, well, with Spotify, it's almost like your own iTunes library, like yes. music you already have. Well, I guess it could be your own music, but that would be really hard to find for someone else, whereas you can just tell people, oh, go to Mega Upload and you know, look for this, here's my band's name, go download this album for free. Right. I guess a lot of people use it like that. I never really used hmm. Mega Upload at all, so I, I don't I'd know never heard of it. it. I think there was one, isn't there one called like Rapid Share? I'd heard of it, but I'd never yeah. really heard of Mega Upload. I hadn't so, either, so. Yeah. Interesting. Cool, sir. What else you got there um, for us? I've got the Google and Motorola uh, merger. Mm-hmm. It was announced uh the 13th, the evening of the 13th, so the Department of Justice um, okayed it. Okayed the merger, mm-hmm. and it was 12 point, I think it's 12.6 billion is what they purchased them for. 12.5 billion to acquire Motorola Mobility and its portfolio of 24,500 patents. So, along with all of the patent things we have going on right now with um, Samsung suing Apple and all, you know, all these different people suing each other. Google just bought Motorola and 24500 of the patents that they own. Well, the interesting so. thing about that is there's currently either ongoing or preliminary lawsuits between Motorola and Apple. So now, since Google has purchased those, now it's going to be Google versus Apple. Yeah. And so that might Big. kind of strain the relationship between the two companies when it comes to a lot of the apps because the iPhone... You know, one of the first companies who jumped on board the iPhone was Google. You, know, you fire up any iDevice, and Google Maps is on there, first and foremost, yep. with, uh, with the map program. So it should be interesting to see how that plays out along those lines. And, you know, it seems like these days the new way to, um, the new way to keep your competitive advantage Mm-hmm. is to sue people for any yeah. type of possible patent you can figure yeah. out. I mean, people are suing people for saying, I told this person about this, Yes. and they stole my idea. Yes. I mean, that's going on around with movies. There's a mm-hmm. couple of movies that people are getting sued over because... There, there, was a, there was a guy suing James Cameron for Avatar, I oh, think. Oh, yeah, yeah, there was, there was that. Yeah. Um, I think that's still going ongoing. I don't think they've closed yeah. that out yet. So, I best advice he, is... He, if wanted you, to, he wanted to sue him... Because he came up with the idea of blue aliens. Something like that. I was like, wow, yeah. really? I mean, they, they're going down to the T with this stuff. Yeah. 
best best thing to do though i guess if you're telling somebody you know something like that is to tape yourself telling them so you have proof well but at least in that case that that can be thrown out as a frivolous lawsuit when you suddenly jump in and say i've got a patent which they might have actually been issued and that's even that's the worst part the fact that germany can issue patents of their own to certain mm-hmm. companies there and we can issue patents yeah. to here you have problems like recently with apple having to pull their iPads out of Germany and then put them back on the shelf because they won a legal battle in the U.S., but not in Germany. And so it seems like now I don't necessarily have to make a better product than Apple, but what I do need to do is go ahead and make sure that I sue them and hold up in court the ability for them to sell their product so I can get more of an edge of market share. Definitely. I mean, it's all coming down to the big heavyweights – garnering all the power that they can mm-hmm. it's like at&t acquiring what t-mobile it was i believe they were really trying to yeah um so i mean it's just you you get gathering up as many people as you can all these little guys are being bought out by the big guys and it's just a battle with the heavyweights to mm-hmm. see who comes out on top so i think they call that an, an ola oligopoly. oligopoly it's not a monopoly but it's a it's a it's a so monop- it's close to it right it's a monopoly of a collection of people Yes, basically. It's a group of people. Yeah. Well, i got one more article here. Um, we've been talking recently about the hard drive prices, internal hard drive prices, um, being up uh, since the flooding in Thailand and, and things like that. Um, there's a report coming out now saying that the hard drive prices are going to remain high through 2014. Um because the inventories won't be back to a normal level until later this year. So maybe probably end of 2012, beginning of 2013, um, they will just be getting their inventories back in order. Right. So that's why a lot of hard drives are selling out quickly. Not very many of them are going on sale. Um, And the the high rate is going to stay around for a couple more years until they get everything balanced back down. So, Well, even right now... It didn't affect the solid states. Yeah, yep. Which technically, solid state is is a really good hard drive. Yes. Um, but and that's what very, we're moving to. But so. they're very expensive. Exactly. And I think we also talked about the fact that a lot of times the way it's made up of its cells, depending on the type you buy, it can allow up to uh, one million to two million two million different writes. Yep. And at the time, I always thought, well, I could just write all, as much as I wanted, mm-hmm. unless you buy a solid state hard drive made up of pure RAM which is really, really expensive, yeah. then you're going to still have a hard drive that dies, even yeah. with no moving parts. So uh, what do you think is going to happen? Do you think at this point with them being so expensive that more people will adopt solid state, and by the time they come back that people are going to be like, SATA, why do we need Why do we need regular SATA hard drives? Well, it's going to be interesting um, because, you know, the hookups are basically the, th- the, the SATA 3.0 cables, Mm-hmm. Are, are what's hooking up a lot with a lot of these solid state drives so the speed's already there i mean with laptops and everything the way they're going it wouldn't surprise me if by 2014 people aren't switching over or have not already switched over to the solid state drives when the other hard drives come back in yeah but, you know people still going to be using them um when they come back in and drop the price i don't know that um i don't know very many people will be jumping on that um just because i really think that the prices are going to be dropping slowly, but enough to where people are going to start buying them, putting in their computers with the solid states. So, I mean, there's sales off and on 
there's you know Amazon daily deals. Yeah. Um, there's you know you're going to be able to find deals on them. People are going to buy them. They're going to put them in the computers. The larger um, space ones, the ones with more gigabytes of space, those prices are going to slowly come down, and I think more people are going to be buying them and putting their computers. So because more people are customizing and building their own computers because it's becoming so much easier for the normal person to used to just be okay upgrade the ram here's how you do this now it's a lot easier for people to build their own computers and things like that and save a lot of money so well haven't traditionally when solid states first came out weren't they very oddly shaped like they looked like a giant uh tape that you would use in a tape drive yeah almost like a almost like a this will be a bad reference for people who are who are much younger than me, but an old audio cassette tape uh, about the size of about like four inches by about three inches, yeah. and so they didn't they didn't look like a normal hard drive. They didn't screw in like a normal hard drive yeah. because of that. And they still really don't. I mean, they still just look like this somewhat rec- rectangular shape, almost like the shape of like a playing card. Yeah, or, um, or like a box of playing cards. Yeah, like yeah. a box of playing cards, um, a little bit bigger, and. You know, but no more thicker than a box of playing cards. Most of them right. aren't. But the way I've been reading into it and stuff, which I need to—I haven't actually bought one, so I really don't mm-hmm. know how how it would adapt. But my understanding is most of them are going to have to come with some sort of adapter that you would screw onto the hard drive itself right. to fit into the bays, like a spacer, like a spacer. Which is that's how you used to have to install hard drives and computers. You'd have to—it wasn't as easy as just pulling out the hard drive slide it back in, you had to pull out, unscrew this metal piece that was holding it together, mm-hmm. pull it out, then unscrew it from the hard drive. Right. That's what it's kind of going back to for now. I'm sure there's stuff in development for it to be a lot easier. Mm-hmm. But but I wanted to bring that up. Um, okay. And I think that's, that's about it. That's about all I've got for this week. Okay. Well, now we're going to go ahead and get into uh, our interview section. So we'll see you after the interview. So for today's discussion on the podcast, we're going to talk about all things certifications. And uh, we are, as always, going to try to relate it back to classes we offer here at MCTC. Um, but we want to delve a little bit deeper into things. Advanced warning, realize, depending on when you're listening to this particular podcast, maybe years from now, this is 2012. So if you're listening years from now, prices are definitely subject to change. We do not control the purse strings of Microsoft, Cisco, or CompTIA uh, in any way, shape, or form, so they can change their prices on a whim without our input. So be aware of that. Uh, So first today, we're going to talk about the CompTIA realm of uh, of certifications, and your entry-level certification on the CompTIA side would definitely be the A-plus class. So uh, Josh, tell us a little bit about the A-plus, if you would, sir. Okay, the A-plus is um, CompTIA certification exam. Um, It's technically two separate exams. Um, uh, You have to have both, pass both, um, to receive the full A-plus certification. Um, It essentially is the basic, it's the groundwork of the standardized IT uh, certification exams, in my opinion. Um, Starts out with uh, bare-bone basics of the computers, what, what each part of it is. Then it goes into the motherboard aspect, um, into the CPU or processor, um, and it just works its way through every part, hardware-wise, of the computer. And then it goes into some uh, software, basic operating system install, um, a little bit of things inside of that, and then it also touches a little bit on some security and some networking um, involved as well. 
but w again with those it doesn't go into a whole lot of detail but it gives you a pretty good um, uh, a ground layer for other exams um, now, I know previously I think they've recently restructured the A-plus because previously they gave people the avenue to go in a lot of different directions with yeah. their exams. Yeah. Do I understand it correctly that now it's kind of back to a hardware exam and then a kind of a client to build onto that? Um, essentially, yeah. There for a couple of years they were trying out the um, – you have your essential exam, and mm -hmm. then depending on what right you wanted to be, a technician, help desk, whatever it was at that point, you took a different exam. Um, but now it's back to just being two exams. Um, one of them is more hardware, and the other one is um, it's kind of more software, but it still has a lot of hardware involved with it. Troubleshooting, yeah, things like that. So, And at this point, as we said, prices can change but at this point um, if a person wanted to go out there and let's say buy them a book off the shelf and go and set for those exams mm -hmm. having to take those two exams would incur them a $173 roughly yeah, that's, cost that's each. A, that's each $173 oh, that's each. each oh yeah. okay so so they're looking at two exams wow being $350 close to it okay and there is a three a three year um, limit renewal, limit. renewal. yeah renewal yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so and there are various ways to renew it um, the main thing is that you do start the process before it runs out because if it runs out you're stuck back doing the whole thing over again there's different ways to get credit for classes there are some I think they have some renewal tests Mm -hmm. um, so there are various ways to, to renew it um, before those three years expire. And, and we're gonna, three years. I think we're going to talk more about that, but I think it's the idea if you keep on kind of climbing that certification mountain, yes. they allow that one to be renewed with the other ones as you go. So. Now, there's a possibility as well that if you if you can attend a place that is a, is a CompTIA partner, is that correct, Jack, yeah. that, that they might be able to get a discount um, to where the tests wouldn't be 173 each, roughly. They'd be about 138 each. About, about 138 each. Uh, CompTIA has a tier program for, depending on the level of the examination, uh, the cost. And, um, but we're trying to complete our certification with CompTIA as becoming one of their providers. And with that, we get a discount for our students as far as the voucher is concerned. Uh, it's basically purchased by the school, then the school, the students, when they want to take the exam, they'll purchase them from us just like they would do a normal test and go and sit for the test and so on like that. Okay. Uh, so let's say, let's, let's go ahead and say that in a hypothetical, um, someone went and sat for their A-plus exam. Their, their goal in life is to eventually acquire many of the CompTIA um, certifications. Recently, they changed CompTIA certifications. They used to be lifetime certifications, but now you have to renew each uh, every three years, basically. The great thing that you can do now is if someone starts preparing, for example, for the Network Plus, they can go and set for that. And if they ever have to renew, they don't have to go and reset for the A-plus test and also the Network Plus. They make you set for the next highest level. So, Jack, I know currently you teach the A-plus, so tell us a little bit about it. Uh, I do the Network Plus after Josh is finished with him in the yes. A-plus. Yes, uh, And we're, what we're trying to do is build from this, from a beginning, for uh, entry level, and build with the A-plus, then to the Network Plus. Because 
after you've put the machine together, you got it set up and everything, you want to connect it to the world. And that's where we're looking at it from the standpoint of the network tech test. It's similar to the Cisco, and we'll get into it a little later, but uh, with this level, you're looking only for connectivity. You're teaching them the security, the uh, connectivity of the devices, understanding and troubleshooting problems that they may or may not have. Um, it's a good entry level as far as a help desk or the uh, technical specialist that comes out to your house and uh, helps you set up your network and so on like that. Because in our programs we have other classes that kind of go along with it, um, there's other levels of specialty plus classes or plus tests that are out there, the Linux plus, the server plus, mm -hmm. the um, little ones like, uh, ones like that that mm -hmm. you can, we don't teach them specific, but we right. let you touch on them. But with a well-rounded student, by the time they graduate, they might feel comfortable enough of spending a week uh, going over specialization and going, or what a lot of people call boot camp, and going back in and getting their certifications for those uh, as we're doing it. But the Network Plus is our IT230 uh, mm -hmm. certification, and we're trying to utilize that now. Mm -hmm. um, and that would be for someone that wanted a network certification, not Cisco, but let the individual or his employer know that he is certified to uh, do the basic setups. Right. And then also, just to relate back, Josh, yours is 270. Your A-plus class is IT270. Yep. And, Jack, you hit upon the Linux Plus and the Server Plus. A lot of the skills that a student may want to expand on with that, uh, they would acquire those in our IT120 course. In the IT120 course and in our advanced uh, operating systems too because mm -hmm. we do both Windows and Linux. They get more exposures in the uh, 120 for Linux right? Um, because that w it's an introduction. But some of the material we give them is valid for uh, online tutorials for almost two years. Right. So by the time they finish, if they want to go back and go in more detail or do they mm -hmm. decide they want to go to Linux themselves mm -hmm. instead of using Windows anymore, then they can choose to do so. Okay. And, uh, but that is another skill, another certification that they can go to an employer with and says, uh, I might, you know, this might not be what you want me to know, but I'm able to learn. And that's what right. a lot of employers want. They want people that are able to learn and adapt, not just be able to do one thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, we talked about the A-plus pricing. What's pricing basically for someone off the street for Network Plus as opposed to someone who might be able to come someplace like, like us if we have a CompTIA Academy set up? The, the Tier 2 type test, the Linux Plus, Network Plus, Server Plus, are approximately mm -hmm. uh, off the street if you just purchase around $256. Okay. With an Academy discount and things like that, it runs around 197 or so. Okay. So That's still a nice it's a, discount. It's a nice discount. And there's always other ones out there that uh, special companies are doing when you buy a book or something like that. So mm -hmm. uh, we always try to keep up on that and immediately notify our students at that mm -hmm. point. So we've talked about so far with CompTIA that, that you're going to you're gonna get some of the, the foundation of a Server Plus and a Linux Plus in an Operating Systems 1 course or uh, in a Network Operating Systems course, which is IT120, uh, or a little bit of it as well in the IT221 Advanced Operating Systems. We've talked about how we have an IT270 class, which is A+, and we've also got a 230 class, which is Network Plus. 
uh, our last class that we that we officially have here that kind of rounds this out. Um, because I, I will say we we do have a class uh, IT 102, which is an advanced yeah. it's an advanced class for um, for people who want to who don't want to take IT 101. They already know Word, Excel, and PowerPoint. Correct. Our 102 class does hit upon project in there, and it does teach some things about being a project manager. I wouldn't necessarily say walking out of that class that someone will be set to try to become a project manager and get Project Plus. But I would say they at least get some of the skills maybe needed for that. Would you agree? Yeah, I would because uh, the first thing before you do anything, you've got to know the background or be able to use the material, the hardware mm -hmm. you're going to be using. And that's right. what the 102 class is. Along with that, they do Visio, which is a designing program. Uh, they can do architectural, uh, networking, electrical, and different programs like that. So it's, it's one of those classes that if you already got it, had it in high school, Microsoft Office, I would recommend to, uh, to use the IT 102 class mm -hmm. as your stepping stone because in the Cisco side, we do do design. Mm -hmm. And if they've already got that skill and they can use a program that's going to design for them, it makes their life so much easier. So, yeah, that one just kind of came to mind there. Yeah. What I really meant the last one we had was is we offer a class with Security Plus that I teach. And the Security Plus, once again, um, like the A Plus, like the Network Plus, they, they do generalities. They're not focusing strictly on Cisco. They're not focusing strictly on Microsoft. It's, uh, it's things like malware, rootkits, um, uh, different types of networking attacks, man in the middle, it's across the board. But it goes ahead and prepares you to go ahead and, and sit for your Security Plus exam. That course is IT224, and that starts to take you into the Tier 3 certification levels with CompTIA, so they get a, a bit more expensive. For someone off the street, you're looking at paying $266 roughly to go and sit for that exam. Uh, but if you go to a CompTIA partner or a CompTIA Academy, you're going to be able to get that for roughly $213, a, a, a savings there of about 50 bucks. which, like we say, any savings is better than nothing all the time. So those are, those are the big certifications on CompTIA that we're hitting on here uh, and the classes that kind of map to them. A lot of those classes you've already heard about in our other podcasts, whether they've been in the Microsoft curriculum, the Cisco curriculum, or the security uh, so now let's go ahead and move on to talk a little bit about um, um, the wireless option because I, I personally don't know the company who's in charge of that one, but because uh, they're not, it's not Cisco. It's, it's not no, it's a uh, it's an international standard in mm -hmm. the CWNP uh, organization, and it's certified uh, wireless network professional organization. Mm -hmm. And because the wireless standards are out there. Uh, they look at it from the standpoint they don't choose one operator over another, Linksys or Cisco mm -hmm. over anyone else. Uh, they teach standards, and an employer knows that the individual that they hire uh, has these standards. Uh, one of the things that we're looking at, we use the uh, CWTS, the Certified Wireless Technical Specialist, which okay. is their first level, their entry level, right. to f get them familiarized with the frequencies, the RF standards. Um, basically the entry level exactly what it is um, one of the things we did with the uh, company and the manufacturer uh, and the textbook provider 
is we combine the uh, certification exam along with the textbook that goes along with the course and uh, got a basically a good discount for it at the time mm-hmm. that paid for their certification exam. So there's no outside cost, which is normally around $175 okay. for the test overall. But the book cost and uh, associated material uh, is about that price for the course itself. And the book. And the book. Yeah, so that works and out nice. It also gives them a online certification practice test base. Mm-hmm. So they're going to see the same type questions they're going to see uh, when they take the real test. Mm-hmm. So their chances are better you, when you're comfortable with the type of question that's being asked to you and, and all. Uh, you usually do well. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've done well with this uh, procedure, how we're doing it right now. Um, we're not going to the next level up uh, because it does get into detailed wireless uh, if we might think about doing it as a specialty topics, which would be the CWNA certification, Certified Wireless Network Associate, mm-hmm. but it would require you to have the first level first. Okay. Do you know, um, I'm just curious, I know with CompTIA you can go and set it at a VIEW testing center or a Prometric. Do you know, do they have I a... I think it's Prometric. They've gone ahead and specifically said Prometric? Prometric. Okay, because uh, I know the... the I'll, the I'll next, have to double check that. I know okay. they were talking about going both. I know the next company we're going to talk about, Cisco, is strictly a, a view testing view center testing. company. So, um, but in if you would take a little while to talk about uh, the Cisco options that we offer our students. Uh, we offer these. Uh, we're a Cisco certified network academy. Uh, we teach for the CCNA, and uh, part of the CCNA. Uh, you have two ways of setting for that certification. You can take it in two parts or take it as an overall exam at the end, uh, depending on the individual's uh, wants and needs. Uh, We usually break it out. The first two semesters uh, sets them up for an entry level or what we call CCENT, entry level network technician, job similar to help desk or uh, uh, specialist technician that would come out to your house. Uh, the se- third level and f- uh, third semester and fourth semester are the ones that basically set you up for the uh, CCNA uh, type test. Uh, on you can still, if you've taken the first semester or first uh, test, you can go ahead and take the second examination. By doing the second examination, the two combined passing them both will pass you for the CCNA. Or you can just go ahead and take the CCNA exam. Um, you do have to understand that if you take it in two parts, that they're going to focus more on those two semesters versus if you took an overall test, they'd spread out the They usually call it like a, a bridge exam. A bridge kinda? exam, kind of, yeah. yeah. And uh, a lot of people go ahead and just do the CCNA. Even if they've done the CCNA 1 or the CCNT 1, uh, they'll do the, uh, the overall final exam just because they want to be able to take that later on. It's only available, really, for Cisco Academy Discovery students set up like that. Okay. So, yeah, we we basically offer the ability to go through uh, IT-131 and 141, which can prep you for the CCENT, or they could hold out and go ahead and do 131, 141, 231 and 241 and they could go ahead and set for the whole thing but it's the idea that either two semesters at a time and then tests or or all four Four. semesters and then a test 
Okay, and those are definitely done through uh, all view now, all view correct? Right now. Yeah, because I knew I knew that at one point they went view, Microsoft went Prometric. So um, our other our other big uh, certification company is Microsoft, who is strictly Prometric. And uh, you may find in your area that there are testing centers who are both view and Prometric. That's quite possible, but uh, it's not necessarily the case. It's like it's like going to a restaurant and then asking them if they have Coke and finding out they have Pepsi. Some people are just one or the other. They don't have both. But on the Microsoft side, um, we have seven courses here that prepare you to take seven different Microsoft exams. Uh, the way Microsoft does it is you get you now get a certification for each exam that you pass but you have to pass certain tests to to achieve a certain level and so the two big levels you'd want to achieve are the Microsoft certified IT professional either server administrator level or the enterprise administrator level and so the first classes you start off with taking there's four classes typically in your third semester um, one of them is preparing you for the Active Directory 7640 exam. You have to pass that for either route you want to go. The second course is a 7642 Network Administrator or Network Infrastructure exam. You have to pass that one for any route you want to go. The third class that we offer is 7643, which is Application Infrastructure. That one is only needed to attain the enterprise administrator level. Uh, so we throw it in the first semester because we'd rather give you four up front instead of four on the back end. But uh, that one can be kind of an elective if you don't want to take it until you're ready for the end. Um, but then after that, at the end of the semester, the fourth class is the 7646 exam, which is the server administrator exam. So just to kind of re-emphasize re there, if you want to become a server administrator, you have to pass the first and second test I mentioned, 640, 642, and then you have to pass that fourth test, 646. Now if you're continuing on and you want to get both certifications, because unfortunately these do not, they do not wrap into one another. For example, someone uh, in, in my case, Jack, actually, someone could decide they want to pass all the tests for the enterprise administrator test, but yep. they, they never have to take the server admin test. It's mm. like it's like that's the end of the line. You can dead end there and decide to back back up and go the other way too, but they can decide to take those are pro tests they pro have test. to take. And uh, if anyone's ever taken any Microsoft exams, they're very much like the designing classes from previously where there are large case studies you have to go through and read upon. And so um, you could take three of those exams from the first semester to get your server admin. The second semester, uh, the first class is a client exam. Currently it's Vista because we are in the Server 2008 curriculum. So that would be 7620. Uh, that's our IT 219 course. Now, I misspoke earlier. I said we have we have seven courses that are Microsoft certification based. Actually, it occurs to me we have eight because we offer an IT 221 class, which is an advanced operating systems course, which is typically we're teaching the operating system that's currently new. At this point, that's Windows 7. There is a certification geared for that, which is 7680. In the Microsoft curriculum, they don't care 
which client you take. Either you can take the one for the current operating system, which could be the newest, latest, and greatest Windows 7, or you can take the one that the certification is geared towards. And since it's 2008, you'd have to take Vista. You, you're not allowed to use XP because that was the old certification. You have to be at least current on the server version or higher. So you, you're more than welcome to pass either one. I think I mentioned in the first podcast, I have students who have gone back and taken the XP one just because they work at the VA, and that's what the VA utilizes. Right. And that's going to be a better um, job placement thing for them. That's going to get their foot in the door better than to have had Windows 7 because they can say, I noticed you use Windows XP here. I went ahead and sat for the test to show you I'm very proficient in that. And that's one of the reasons in IT120, mm-hmm. the network opera- introduction to network operating system, right. uh, we do use XP and mm-hmm. Linux for they'll get the exposure to, to XP before they come into your classes mm-hmm. for that purpose so they can go back and pick up the differences. Because a lot of it is what's the difference between XP, networks portion of it, Vistas and Sevens, right. they're called. They've got different names now, and if you're familiar with it, the employer likes it. Yeah, well, I mean, and you're never going to go to an employer who's like, "Oh, well, we just saw Windows 8 just came out. We better drop everything and buy that new right. version." You're going to see older versions wherever you go, and so having more experience on a wider range of operating systems, I think, can only help. Can, yes. So, um, but we do have that that. Um, first class of the second semester is the VISTA course currently, and then the sixth course in that, well, the second one in that semester, but the sixth Microsoft one, if you want to think of it that way, IT222, is currently an Exchange 2007 course. That exam does not have to be taken to complete your server administrator or your enterprise administrator, but I I was thinking right now in the current environment, exchange is a very nice thing to be able to go and sit for because everybody is doing email. A lot of companies are actually doing hosting of other people's email. And so if you have any type of exchange experience, a lot of companies are going to want to snatch you up. And there may even possibly be uh, a, a, a salary bump based on being able to have some knowledge. So in that one, you could go and set for your uh, Exchange 2007 configuring certification, but that's more of an elective. Uh, And then the last course, earlier we had a server administrator exam. Now we have a 70647 exam, which is your enterprise administrator. And so to get the enterprise administrator, because I know it's confusing, and Microsoft has charts online, and they're super confusing. But just to summarize here, for server administrator, you would have to pass three exams. Active Directory, which is 640, Network Infrastructure, which is 642, and then the Pro exam for server administrator, which is 646. If you want to get your enterprise administrator, you still have to pass the Active Directory and Network Infrastructure. Can't get out of those. You also have to pass that 646 exam that was in the first semester. You have to pick up a client, whether it be the Windows 7 client we teach separately or the Vista as part of the Microsoft Curriculum's uh, network administration classes. And then you have to go and sit for the final pro test, which is the 647 exam. As I said, the exchange test is kind of the odd man out, but I think it can only help to have exchange experience on your 
on your resume, and the exam for that is the 7236 exam. So um, those are the options we have for Microsoft, for CompTIA, and as well for Cisco. Um, sometimes a little forgetful, so Jack, can you think of any any certifications that I've left out for us that we currently offer? No, that covers most of the programs. That covers most of them. Well, um, oh, and I didn't tell you all my pricing. Uh, on the Microsoft exams, they recently raised the price. Microsoft exams, if you were to walk in off the street and go to a Prometric Center, they're $150 a piece. They don't distinguish price whether it's a normal or a pro exam. It's 150 bucks automatically. Now, you also have the ability to sign up for what's called an academic test. And the way you distinguish those is normally the commercial tests have a prefix of 70 dash in front of your number. So the active directory will be 70 dash 640. The uh, academic ones you can buy are called 72 dash in that number. And you can go to Prometric, you can sign up for it. Those cost $83. And you'll have to provide some sort of ID proving that you attend a higher education institution. There's also an extra perk that we now have. Uh, we are an IT Academy, a Microsoft IT Academy, have been for several, several years. They now have special exams that are at least priced specifically for us, and they are the 73 dash exams. You can only acquire a voucher to take a 73 dash exam from an IT Academy. So you can't go to Prometric's website and purchase one of these. Uh, they are $72. So you're saving about 11 bucks from even academic. But the thing I find more useful is many times Microsoft will run these deals where you get what's called a second shot offer. And the idea with a second shot is that when you buy a voucher, if you go and you sit for the exam the first time and you fail it, they give you a free second attempt on the exact same test. I always have students say, can I use the second shot for a different test? No. It's the second shot of the exact same test. And in recent years, uh, just last spring actually, Microsoft only offered the second shot on vouchers you can get from an IT academy. So they didn't even allow it on the normal academic ones, which is a big change for them. So you can save like 50% off on, on going that route. So um, now, yeah, now I think I've remembered all my spiel. So hopefully that gives you a better understanding of, of what classes you might want to take or what certifications you might want to sit for and also how much money you need to budget for those type of things um, because they do expect you to have experience. Uh, as Jack was saying, especially in the Cisco side, they usually expect you to have at least one to two years of experience many times before you go and set for even the, the CCNT or the CCNA. So you need that experience on your side when you go and take that test because it is not a fun feeling when you look at that test score and see that you failed the CCNA and you think about the fact that a good 250 to 300 bucks just vanished in thin air on that failing test score. So. You want to make sure you understand the stuff. You want to make sure it's just not the fact that you've memorized the questions because an employer is going to fire you in, in a month when they realize, even though you have a certification, you don't know diddly squat about what you're doing. So definitely make sure you understand the hands-on as well as the test stuff. 
But uh, I hope this helps you all figure out some of the possible certification routes you want to go. So I hope with our uh, with our interview amongst the three of us, me, Josh, and Jack, that uh, you have a better idea about a lot of the certifications that are that are very very helpful for you to get in the industry that a lot of the employers want you to have. You also know uh, roughly what they cost. Because remember, like I say, this is recorded now in 2012. If you're listening to this years from now, prices can definitely vary, and we all know that inflation can make things go up. But it at least gives you an idea of the type of money you want to start squirreling away so you can make sure you can get the certifications you need to make you more marketable out when you're going ahead and trying to start your career in the IT field. If you have any questions about anything that we've talked about in this podcast, feel free to go to our Twitter account, TalkOnTechMCTC, and drop us a message. Also, all the different articles we've talked about here today, we will also be retweeting up on the TalkOnTechMCTC Twitter account. But for this week, I am Patrick Smith. And I'm Josh Joseph. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.